You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So most of you have probably seen the Titanic. Uh, I'm sure some of you actually probably watch it on a yearly basis. Uh, It is a staple of American cinematography. It's a visual masterpiece. They had the exact replica of the Titanic. The soundtrack's memorable. The question is, why was the movie so alluring to so many Americans? Some of you may say, well, it was because it was a a true story uh, retold. And perhaps, perhaps it was. But I think it's probably because it was a love story. Uh, And if you haven't seen it, sorry, Spoiler alert, it's been out for 30 years. Uh, Jack and Rose, right, epitomize American romance. Jack is a scrappy kid who's on a cruise liner because he won a boarding pass in a poker game. Rose belongs in the upper echelon of British lore and is engaged to be married to a man of the same social status. Rose isn't romantically interested in her fiance, um, but in one of the more interesting scenes, Rose's mother reminds her daughter that the arranged marriage is in the best interest of the family. Rose's father, who passed away, apparently squandered the family fortune, and this is the chance to retain the family reputation and wealth. But as we know, Rose meets Jack on the deck of a ship, and we're left wondering for maybe five seconds, who will Rose choose? Jack, of course, why? because the movie doesn't work if she doesn't. And we are hardly moved by her choice to choose Jack. I mean, of course she would choose Jack, right? Her fiance was a relative jerk, given the three minutes of screen time that he got. Uh, And so we say, yes, of course. But that's because we live in the sea of the West, where the individual will always sacrifice another's desire at the altar of oneself. Right? It is built into our Western DNA, but that is not true for the rest or much of the rest of the world. I wonder what it would have been like to watch the Titanic through the eyes of someone from the Eastern part of the world. Watching a film through the lens of a strong group society or a communal worldview where the group always takes precedent over the individual. I sense that they would have not watched the film thinking it was this great Academy Award-winning film, but rather they would have watched it as a parable in shame. And I could almost hear you saying, yeah, but her fiance was an arrogant jerk. Well, perhaps, but that proves the point even more. In our society, the individual preferences always take precedent over the preferences of the group make the comparison to moralize the western part of the world to the eastern part of the world, I tell you that because it's imperative that we understand the distinctions between cultures and worldviews from the eastern part of the world to now. Because the Bible was not written with a western view in mind. It was written in the ancient Near East where there was a strong group mentality. And the health of the whole always took precedent over the health of the individual. And that was true at the level of nation. That was true at the level of biological family. And that was true at the level of the church. And the decisions someone made were not purely based on an individual desire or personal dream. It was much more of a communal desire and a communal dream. Hence the provocative claim of Jesus when he says, Here are my brothers and sisters. 
Those, of course, were not his biological brothers and sisters. They did not share the same mother. So his wording is strange. But what he is saying is now they are part of the family. I belong to them. They belong to me. And this takes on a profound meaning around the Lord's table. And as we continue to move through what we've called the meal, we step into the actual practice of the supper in the church at Corinth. And the scripture we just read is actually the largest portion of scripture dedicated to the Lord's Supper in the entire New Testament. And there are many other references to the supper, but the focused attention Paul gives here is actually very noteworthy. Now, before we dive into it, let me say that we have a tendency to glorify the early church for what it did, and we sort of long to get back to that day where we're like the early church. Um, that's not good practice. And you may ask why, and that's because the early church specifically, the church that we just read about in Corinth, had these issues. Sexual incest, suing each other, drunkenness, classism, and infighting. It is not the perfect church. It is just the church. And in the chunk of scripture we just read, Paul goes hard after the Corinthian church because of what has happened at the Lord's Supper. So, we have to place this in the context of the Greco-Roman society. In the Greco-Roman world, when people would gather, they would eat something called the dipnon, which means supper. And the dipnon was eaten at about three in the afternoon each day after the working day was over, and it consisted of two parts, the supper itself and the symposium, which is where we get the word symposium, and this was a giant drinking party. And then in a religious context, which is the Greco-Roman world was highly religious, they would chant to the gods. And these suppers had three distinct attributes about them. Social stratification, so meaning the rich and poor were separated and slaves and free were separated. Disruption and argumentation became a staple at these banquets, so much so that it had to establish what is called now the Roberts Rules of Order, because there was so much fighting going on. And drunkenness and inebriation was expected. Wine actually was such an important staple of the meal that they would have a wine attendant attending to each bottle. And that is the flyover, but that is the backdrop of the Greco-Roman meal that takes place, which Paul is writing. And we can't know for absolute certainty, but we have it on good authority, that the letter to the Corinthian church was written by Paul from the home of Gaius, Paul says in Romans 16, 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you, the whole Corinthian church. This would infer that Gaius was most likely of elite social status and had a large enough residence to accommodate the church at Corinth. And in a private house, it is likely that no more than nine people could recline around the same table, the triclinium, which remember the picture I showed you a couple weeks ago. And in the Greco-Roman world, the division was clear and split. The ones with power, money, and status would recline at the table, and those who were less power, money, and status would either stand, which was a sign of inferiority, or they would sit on the ground in the atrium. So, with that in mind, we pick up in verse 17. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are many divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? So the church at Corinth had actually turned the Lord's Supper into the Greco-Roman Dipnon. So instead of transforming the Greco-Roman meal into the values of the gospel, the supper was transformed into the values of a stereotypical cultural meal. And we see a few things. One, social stratification. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. It's likely that the rich were able to get off work at a decent time, and they would go ahead and eat. More often than not, leaving nothing for the poor. No food, nor even the ability to sit at their table. And it's actually very likely and probable that unbelievers would be present at these meals, either via a spouse, a child, or a household slave that was serving the meal. Which means that each meal was intended to be an evangelistic outreach, a missional moment declaring the Lord's death until he comes, declaring there are actually no divisions among us by economics or ethnicity, and that truth gets completely undermined. And what Jesus did in crushing the dividing wall of hostility between people, the church has rebuilt for personal preference and convenience. And in this instance, it becomes very obvious and a very literal divide. You eat here, I eat here. And what was once good news is now bad news, and the message proclaimed by the messengers of the kingdom mirrors the message proclaimed by the empires of the world. You are defined by your social status 100%. And I have to ask the question, if we're that different. If we're that different. Crossing boundaries, particularly an economic boundary, is required at some level from a Jesus follower. It is not a suggestion. It is not a mere proposal. It is discipleship. Jesus hung around everyone. The call, is, the call to Jesus is actually a call to die It is a call to live, right? Come and live, come and drink the water of Jesus. And then the call is to go and die, to give your life away for the sake of another. And that includes who is invited to your dinner table, and that includes who the church allows around her dinner table. Secondly, we see drunkenness, right? They take on a posture of inebriation. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. It's, it's just actually quite a contrast if you think about it. The overconsumption of a specialty drink, particularly that of wine, a very high-aged, fine alcohol, to numb whatever work ailment, relational strain, and personal pain one is in, and then a complete neglect of those who need food, a basic element to function in society, particularly of the household of God. It is the height of arrogance and selfishness. And again, I think for many of us in this room, there is a temptation to numb the pain of our lives with things like alcohol. There just is, especially in my generation. But to be filled with the Spirit is not to be filled with wine. The command is actually relatively explicit. And for those who would come to Jesus with that, there is so much grace for us. But it's helpful to remember that we, as was the case in Corinth, 
we are witnesses, right? We live a counterformed lifestyle, uh, what one pastor calls a beautiful resistance, which means we have one master and we are slaves to no one and nothing. We are not mastered by anything, including our favorite drink of choice. He goes on and says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There are a host, and I mean a host, of different interpretations regarding exactly what this means. A ton of ink has been spilled over the last 20 centuries debating what discerning the body and eating and drinking judgment on himself means. So I am going to give you one interpretation. I think it's the most compelling interpretation relative to the text, but there are other interpretations of this passage. When Paul speaks about discerning the body, he speaks about the body of Jesus, the church. So to discern the body is to eat the supper in a way that bears witness to not only the unity of the church, but to the fellowship of the church, which transcends ethnic, economic, or gender barriers. So it makes sense, given what Paul is addressing, and given the issues of the church at Corinth, which many of them are highly, highly relational issues, that the problem is not merely that the Corinthian church is not thinking about the cross enough. Because that's typically how the scripture is read. We're just not thinking about the cross enough. We're not discerning the body of Jesus enough. But rather the problem was that they were not embodying the cross enough. And specifically what the cross and resurrection did, which was break down the walls of hostility. And there are many ways to eat the supper unworthily. And there is a good discussion to be had around that phrase. But the specific unworthiness Paul's addressing is a communal problem not an individual one. And much of the time we look at the table for mere personal introspection and reflection, and I do not hear me say that should be discounted. I firmly believe personal reflection and introspection directed by the Spirit of God is good and healthy and necessary. But the serious problem of the Corinth church is that the supper does not bear witness to the gospel. The form is out of control, it's filled with wine instead of the spirit, and it is literally segregated. And that should stir us. We should read that and think, ah. We shouldn't read that and think, oh man, those dumb Corinthians. We should read that and think, oh no. Because as much as the letter to the Corinthian church was written to the church at Corinth, the letter to the Corinthian church is for us, just as it is for the church at Corinth. And Paul ends by saying, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He literally says, if you can't wait to eat, Grab a snack at home before you come over. But don't start eating without everyone present. The point is, we're here to embody what God has done in bringing us all together. The church eats together. Specifically, it eats the Lord's Supper together. By its very function of sitting across the table and having a meal, it represents something gravely different, a family. 
And it's probably difficult for us to even conceptualize that in our minds because we have taken the Lord's Supper and made it so individual. Um, it's the only thing we're waiting on. We're not waiting on someone to get to our table. We're waiting on the pastor to sort of give the word. And then we take the, the bite of cracker. Um, but that is not the original intent. Families eat together. And honestly, that is not just true of yesteryear. It's true around the world. I was reading this week from the Organization of Econo- for Economic Cooperation and Development about eating and families. And this is what they said. Mm. Okay, I'm just going to read it. Um, Okay, using data from nearly three quarters of the world's countries, a new analysis found that students who do not regularly eat with their parents are significantly more likely to be truant at school. Children who do not eat dinner with their parents at least twice a week also were 40% more likely to be overweight compared to those who do. On the contrary, Children who do eat dinner with their parents five or more days a week have less trouble with drugs and alcohol, they eat healthier, they show better academic performance, and report being closer with their parents than children who eat dinner with their parents less often. It feels like common sense. It, It does feel like common sense, and yet we do it less and less. Another study showed that the amount of money spent on fast food per family is almost nearly now the same amount of money spent on groceries per family. There is flourishing, it's not a conviction, right? The data shows there is flourishing that happens within families when they eat together consistently over time. There is a direct correlation to how often a family eats together to how much they flourish in society. And if we're going to model a different way for our community, for our city, One practice that we do over time for the sake of another is sit down, quiet ourselves, and enjoy a meal. So two things. The first one is this. Communion is about a shared table, not a solo one. So the beauty of Christianity is the call to whoever is thirsty, come to me. Whoever is hungry, come to me. Whoever is worn out, come to me. Rich, poor, east, west, brown, black, white, French, Chinese, Iraqi, Egyptian, whoever wants me can have me. And so people come to him. And Jesus responds by saying, I will give you rest. I will give you, you will no longer thirst and hunger. I will fill the deep longing in you. He does that and it is incredible. But then he says, here is my family that you have been given. You did not choose them. I did. You did not pick them. I did. But a call to Jesus is a call to his family, including the crazy uncle and the annoying cousin and the awkward grandmother. Every nuclear family has them and every church has them. And you're probably one of them. You do not get the option to practice Christianity by yourself. It's not that it's a bad decision to do it. It's that it's an impossible one. I spoke two weeks ago about how sometimes we wish Jesus could just be with us here and now. That would be ideal, right? It would make life easier. It would soothe our doubt. It would cement any questions we have or erase any questions, and it would cement any any faith that we feel like we're lacking. Well, here's how St. Teresa of Avila put it when it comes to the actual real body of Jesus. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. 
Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. You want to see Jesus' body? Come to the Lord's table, needy and broken, and eat the meal as you look your brother and sister in the eye. You want to see Jesus' body? Come next Friday as we open the doors up at Whittle Springs Middle School and open our hearts up to moms in this neighborhood. You want to see Jesus' body? Come hang out with us on Monday afternoons as we invest in the lives of urban youth in our neighborhood. You want to see Jesus' body? Step into a missional community where needs are met and prayers are prayed and scripture is read and stories are shared and people are encouraged. Jesus' body is right here. Look around. He has been so kind to give us himself in this way. And one of the ways in which our discipleship to Jesus has become so underdeveloped as it relates to communion is that communion is not communal anymore. Communion, like baptism, is one of the practices that God gives us that we literally cannot do alone. But if you have practiced communion at any church, I would imagine it probably felt fairly lonely. Majority of the time. It's, sol- it's a solitary practice. The joy of Christianity is our salvation, and our salvation includes God's family. God is not merely creator. God is father, and father infers family, children. We are invited into the friendship and fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the epitome of beautiful relationship. And inherently, when we said yes to Jesus, we said yes to everyone else. Even when, and especially when, we don't think that we did. And think about it. Who who wants to actually walk life alone? Who Who wants to legitimately be a Christian by themselves? We are wired and created for relationship with the family of God. And if you don't like the family of God now, you're going to have a massive, massive issue when you get to the kingdom because there will only be family there. Loneliness is not a category in the kingdom of heaven. Communion also provides a table that embodies the gospel, not a table that undermines it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What makes the Lord's Supper a denial of the gospel rather than a celebration of it is a refusal to be reconciled, to seek forgiveness, or to forgive. So to take communion in an unworthy manner and not examine yourself is to come to the table with a felt sense of superiority, as if somehow you are deserving of the table or unreconciled relationships that are present at the table. It's actually, in, it's, it's strange, it is literally the felt experience of inferiority. I don't belong, who am I? I have nothing to bring but my sin, my brokenness. I'm a broken person. That is the requirement 
at the seat of Jesus. James M. Hamilton says, those who partake unworthily identify themselves with those who crucified Jesus rather than with those for whom Jesus was crucified. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes is claiming that all is still not right in the world and it is still not right with me. I need the death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes back to make the world whole and until he comes back to make me whole. It is this act that if we let it through the power of God will form us and we will not adopt the fallen invisible lines that separate our city both willfully and ignorantly. There is something about a kitchen table where preconceived notions start to come down. There's something about a table where all of a sudden you are brought barren before someone else. You both need food. You both need water. You, you, you're unique in your own unique way, but you're not that unique. You're literally a human being like everybody else. Literally, inherently, there is nothing that makes you better or worse than anyone else. The dinner table is a moment where political tribalism and personal perceptions of people fade into the background and stereotypes suddenly get transformed into an image bearer and the internet dies in light of face-to-face conversation. One of the, I I feel this, I, I, I felt it for the past year and a half and I really felt it over the last six months. One of the great and I, and I get why we had to do it, but one of the great consequences of the last year and a half in our country, in this city, is the fact that we have been told with great wisdom and insight not to eat together around the table with other people. Um, and now, again, for good reason, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think we're now going to pay the bill. We're paying the bill because we refuse to now engage across a table. Jesus has given us the one thing that's going to reconcile us, and we were told to stay away from it. And now we're willfully saying, I'm never going to eat with that person, especially in the family of God. So distance makes the heart wonder and we begin to assume the worst about another, and we begin to critique much more than we listen, we yell much more than we're quiet, and our base emotions of fear and anger take over the brain, and our mental maps get rewired, and the divine image found in each individual is replaced by a talking point. We just have to get back to the table. The wonder of the church is that it's a multidimensional, multifaceted, multi-gifted global phenomenon. And the thing that God gave us that would be compelling to a lost world was a dinner table that gets transformed into a family reunion. And the Lord's Supper is the opportunity to practice the height of the reunion, which is the meal. And the gospel makes the meal wildly diverse and sometimes painfully loving. The notion that the world is more divided than it ever was is just way overblown. The the first recorded sin after the fall was 
a brother intentionally, premeditatively going out and killing his other brother. The world has always been divided. The world has been at war at it with itself since Cain killed Abel. The issue is not the world, that the world is divided. The issue is the church. We are taking our cues from them. I hope if a neighbor put their face up to the window of our church taking the Lord's Supper together, they would have two experiences. They would think it is the oddest thing. Strange. And they would find it wildly captivating. It's odd because you're eating, specifically the bread and the cup, as a reminder of God's grace to you as a needy person who brings nothing to God but sheer dependence on Him. A meal where you are reminded that you are not whole, that you are broken, that you need grace and mercy, that Yahweh, the God of the universe, stepped down into our world. And the bread that God created, He then transformed into Himself and has now given us His body, which He says, my body is bread for the world. And so you eat it, acknowledging that with other people. That is strange. It's weird. Who does that? But it's also captivating because your table has people that would never normally eat with you, much less be in the same home, and you start deferring to one another and listening to each other and blessing each other and celebrating each other and mourning with each other. And encouragement just starts to pour out and cynicism begins to subside and the gospel doctrine that you believe begins to become the gospel culture that you experience. Your table becomes a place of welcome hospitality, not a fortress to retreat to. That is captivating. And our neighbors may think it's strange, but I actually think they'll long for it because they're like us and we long for it. Because in a lonely, isolated world, Compelling family relationships are beautiful, specifically the ones that you could have never dreamed up. If someone read your personal statement of faith about what you believe about Christianity, would they conclude that Christianity, as we teach it and practice it, has everything to do with how an individual relates to God and absolutely nothing to do with how people relate to another. Our discipleship and our formation happen as a family unit. God is our father, the church is our family. It is the hardest thing we'll probably ever do. Live in deeply committed, invested relationships with people, but it is also by God's grace the most life-giving and attractive witness to the world. Jesus said, they will know, they will know by your love for each other. Not even your love for them. Actually, you, the, 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 the relationships are so compelling, and I don't mean that they're always joyful. I mean that it's deep forgiveness, challenge, uh, living in a non-canceled community, a reconciled community where there is pain, it, it, it is the hardest thing we'll ever do, and it is the most compelling. So let's pray to that end. Jesus, we, we acknowledge that we need people, and we need your grace 
specifically your grace in relationship with one another. How do we become reconciled people? We first have to realize we have been reconciled to you. But Lord, you are calling us to be reconciled to each other, calling us back to the place where we all recognize our need, we confess it openly, and we celebrate with great joy what you have done for us. Your gospel is attractive, if not unbelievable, because it invites weary people like us into your presence. Thank you for your grace to us. And may we be grace poured out, specifically this week for those inside the church, for our brother and our sister, for those who say, I worship Jesus too. Help us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You all can stand as we worship. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.